The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. All right. Thanks, Corey. Well, this, this session is a little bit of a, a game time decision. We, I think we might have just kind of landed on having a session on marriage just maybe a week ago. Um, so, but honestly, there's, you know, looking out over the, the broad scope of uh, just about every local church I've ever been in, there's a lot of married couples. It's just typically how things go. And so when you're thinking about developing a culture of care, mutual care for one another, knowing how to uh, think about marriage and knowing how to encourage people toward God's ideal for marriage is uh, absolutely a vital part of that. It's a vital part of having a culture of care uh, in the local church. And so that's really what I'm going to try to do in this, in this hour is just review for you, I think, the, the God's ideals for marriage as a means of equipping you to be able to come alongside one another to think through the details in a way that we kind of described in the last session. So I'm not going to dial down into all the same kinds of details. I needed to figure out what does it look like to love and serve my wife sacrificially in one specific area of life. Um, I'm not going to dig down in there. I'm going to leave the, the broader appli- or the more specific application to all of you. We're going to talk about what does the ideal marriage look like? What is God's design for marriage? So to that end, turn... Uh, in your copy of the scriptures to Genesis chapter 2, where we see God establish marriage. Uh, Genesis 2, and I'm going to read verses 18 through 25. Uh, there it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept And then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Well, this this passage is the beginnings of marriage. It's I mean, this context is the beginnings of everything, right? That's the meaning of the word Genesis, actually. Uh, and this is the beginning of the divine institution of marriage. And absolutely, it's a divine institution, properly understood, right? Designed by God, defined by by God. Uh, Therefore, only God can properly make rules and set the guidelines regarding marriage. We are living in a cultural context now, right, where the nations rage and the peoples imagine such vain things as same-sex marriage, right? 
but that's not uh, God's design. Marriage, a union between a man and a woman, it's what it's been since the beginning of time. And nothing our culture or our politicians do is really going to change that. Um, so I'll just you know, throw that grenade over the wall and let the pastors deal with the fullness of it all later. But um, don't ask me questions about that. That's, that's off limits. Um, it's not really. That's, that's a joke. Um, but any, I think anything that's called marriage or relational unions that are more or less or different than what we see described here is a perversion of God's design for marriage. And so this, this is where we go to figure out uh, what marriage really is. And any of those broken versions of it, uh, whatever they might be, can, can never produce the kind of joy and happiness and fulfillment and pleasure that God has designed marriage to be when we understand and follow His, His design. In the summer of 2014, right before we left New England, a friend of mine preaching at another local church nearby had three people approach him after a church service. It was a, it was a man and, and two women. One of the women was pregnant, and the man introduced the non-pregnant woman as his fiance, and the pregnant woman as his fiance's best friend and the mother of his child. So there they are, the three of them. His, his girlfriend or fiance's best friend wanted to have a baby. I don't know why. I didn't get that part of the story. Uh, and when she told her friend, her friend said, well, my boyfriend is really cool. I think he'd be a great dad. You, sh- you should have his baby. And so they did. And they all lived together, the three of them, uh, as they told my, my, uh, my friend. But in recent weeks, they were having uh, trouble getting along. And in their relational difficulties, uh, they were driving through town and they saw this sign that said Riverbank Church. And they were like, hey, I've heard churches help people. We should go in there and see if they can help us learn how to get along. And so they did. They just showed up the next Sunday morning unchurched people, completely unchurched. None of them had ever stepped foot in a church in their entire lives. They walk in a church, uh, the one they drove by that was closest to home. Well, they relate that story to my friend, and, um, and, and, they're, and they're like, can you help us? <laughs> and he said to them, well, that's, that's an interesting story, uh, and this is a pretty unique arrangement right here. I've not encountered any, anything like that before, uh, and maybe you've never heard this before, But the Bible says that God designed relationships like marriage uh, and parenting to function a certain way. And when we follow the design, follow uh, the creator of the world and of people and of the hearts of man, when we follow his design, then things work better. And if you'd be interested in sitting down and reading in God's word how God has designed marriage and families to work, I would be happy to, to spend some time with you and help you understand that. So that was his response, which I thought was a great response. Um, I really need to call him and find out how that ended because I tell that story as an introduction to, to marriage, and uh, uh, I, I moved to Spokane, and so uh, I never found out how the story ended. So it's probably uh, sounding kind of odd to most of us, that people would be that far off in their thinking about how marriage and family should work, right? But this is where we're going. This is where our culture is going. I don't, I don't think I, I have to convince you of that. 
we are not trending in a good direction in terms of our culture embracing uh, biblical uh, principles for marriage. There's so much confusion and dysfunction. This was about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago. An issue of Christianity Today, they had an article about polyamory, multiple intimate partners in various scenarios. And in that article it said 70%, 70% of non-religious Americans between the ages of 24 and 35 believe there is nothing wrong with polyamory. 24 to 35, unchurched people, 70% having multiple intimate partners, nothing wrong with that. That's, that's our world. That is, that is where we are. In 2020, Somerville, Massachusetts legalized or created legal status for polyamorous relationships. So that someone who worked for the civil government in Somerville, Massachusetts, if they had multiple intimate partners, they could all get insurance. So they changed all the rules in this one. It's just one local community. It's not the whole state of Massachusetts. Um, that was just, that's 2020. And again, when, when they passed uh, civil unions in Vermont, that was right when I moved to Vermont, was, was when they f- passed the first civil union law in the United States. They weren't satisfied with legal status. They wanted gay marriage, not civil unions, right? And so they fought for something more than legal status. And I'm convinced that Somerville, Massachusetts is just the trend, that they're not going to be satisfied with just legal status, that it will not be much longer before uh, polygamy is again uh, legal in wide swaths of the United States. When they redefined gay marriage, or when they redefined marriage to include a union between a man and man or a woman and woman, right? They've, they had to cast off the moral basis for not redefining it in any and every other way. What is the moral basis? Once you say gay marriage is still marriage, there is no moral footing for, for saying otherwise. So again, that is just to highlight how important it is that we as Christians understand God's design. And as, as we're thinking about encouraging one another toward living out God's perfect design uh, for marriage, it is in part a response to the culture. We want our marriages to put on display the worth of God because people are going to experience very broken versions of it in the world. And so when they, they walk through the doors of our churches, we want to we put on display God's worth by putting on display the worthiness of the marriage relationships that he designed, which means we need to understand the basics and live them out. So that's, let's do that. Let's look at four, four pursuits of a God-honoring marriage. So four fundamental purposes and designs that God has for our marriages in the church. So understand these principles, embrace these principles, live them out in your homes and be encouraging uh, and caring uh, for one another toward these aims. The first pursuit of a God-honoring marriage is couples must cultivate companionship. Right? The Lord God said it is not good for the man to be alone, right? So I, I think marriage was established to, to solve Adam's problem of being alone. I, I would clarify, though, that alone doesn't necessarily mean that marriage was designed to solve loneliness. 
There are many reasons why two are are better than one, and I'll use the word companionship here, and while I'm using that word, I'm not restricting that concept to relational intimacy, which would be, you know, sort of the antidote to loneliness. We here see God's commentary that Adam was alone, and that condition is the only thing about God's creation that he says was, was not good, right? Everything else about creation is repeatedly said to be good, 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 and then after he creates Eve, it's very good, right? But here it says God saw something that was not good. Why was it not good for Adam to be alone? Well, start with the first and most obvious point. I think Adam had been given some responsibilities by God in Genesis chapter 1. So Genesis 2 is sort of an expansion of uh, giving us more details about things from Genesis chapter 1. So there's a little bit of structural things there if you've never studied the book of Genesis. But in Genesis chapter 1, when God creates uh, humankind, verse 26, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, cattle, creeping things, all that roams on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Okay, Adam can't do that by himself, right? So it wasn't good. Uh, He needed an Eve. He needed a suitable helper, if for no other reason, to fulfill that part of his commission to to fill the earth, right? So um, it was definitely not good that Adam was alone if he's supposed to fill the earth. But that's not the only reason. I, th- I think that whole element there of relational companionship is, is part of what uh, is our reflecting of the image of God. So God who exists in Trinity, exists in perfect and eternal relationship within himself, self-sufficient within himself, we are created in the image and likeness of that relational God, and in order to reflect that, uh, he designed marriage partly as a means of reflecting that very relational nature in, and not just being relational, because he, he, we wouldn't have needed marriage necessarily. He wants to reflect that relational uh, picture of God in a very intimate uh, spiritual union between a husband and a wife, that one flesh relationship in, in a way that God himself is similar, three in one, right? And so uh, it was not good because what God was designing for us to reflect of his image it necessarily involved a husband and wife. What God was calling them to accomplish in, in multiplying and filling the earth necessarily could not be done alone. And then I think the rest of it, frankly, if someone said, here's a planet, rule it, I'm like, can I get some help? <laughs> Right, I mean, just that's a what he calls the human race to do, essentially, and Adam and Eve specifically in the garden, to uh, fill the earth and subdue the earth and rule over uh, everything on the earth. Um, I think there's uh, like so many, so many things that we do, isn't it? Isn't it nicer to do our work with a companion, with someone along our sides who's helping in the labor and uh, contributing? And I think that is part of. The design. So both in responsibilities in that way, both in the relational way of reflecting God's image and then in the 
the reproductive way of filling the earth, I think all of those things are rooted in God's design for marriage. And that's why it wasn't good that Adam was alone. Eve became the one uh, who could be that complement and accomplish those uh, purposes and, and designs more thoroughly together. And I think it's a beautiful picture, one that shows us marriage is designed to be a total sharing of life with one another. That's why I think the companionship word is such a good word, um, because it's a total sharing of our life together with another person. And it was designed to be a joyful companionship, right? I mean, prior to the fall, um, there was nothing not joyful about it. There's a good double negative for you. It sounds great uh, in in words, but it looks bad on paper. Um, Adam got a companion and a co-laborer in that work that they were jointly called to do. And I think there have been definitions of, of marriage that overemphasize that uh, it's a covenant of companionship. I think the, the nature of marriage is the relationship. It's a relationship that we enter into through covenant, a very, a very sacred covenant, and we should see it that way. Um, but uh, sometimes I think we've... Uh, we use a definition like that, and it emphasizes things that, that overshadows other aspects of marriage, what it means to be a Christian first and a married person second, so that our total identity isn't wrapped up in our, our marriage. And Jesus, um, I think, highlights that for us, right? Jesus did not need marriage to image the relational nature of God or to complete the work that God gave him to do. And so our identity can't be uh, wrapped up in our marriage, um, and we don't need uh, a husband or a wife to fully reflect the image of God. But God in His grace has given a gift to us, I think, of this marriage uh, relationship, a kind of intimacy in marriage that includes a co-laborer in our, in our mission to uh, subdue the earth that results in a oneness, a relational intimacy that's so profound Marriage, that relational intimacy is so profound that God says it's adequate to picture the spiritual union of Christ and his people. That's, that's rich. I mean, just, just the fact that it's designed to image the spiritual union between Christ and his people, it ought to be a, a wake-up call to make sure I'm pursuing that relational intimacy with my spouse. My, with my spouse. Um. I think some have overemphasized that and, and missed the, the importance of co-laboring. Um, I think uh, it's possible to, to overemphasize certain aspects, and we're going to try to provide a little bit of, of correction to that. But if, if the ultimate design of, of marriage in God's eyes is to picture, to image God, and, uh, and specifically to image it in this way in which we're sharing all of life together, this companionship, this relational intimacy, um, do, you, do you value and prize that, husbands and wives here? Is that the thing you, you value and prize? And I'm not, I'm not even thinking about the sexual relationship, though that's certainly uh, the most intimate part of marriage in a sense. It's certainly something to design, that God's designed for us to enjoy and pursue. But I'm talking about just the person uh, that is your spouse, and thinking about knowing them in every way. That's a responsibility husbands have, right? Husbands, uh, dwell with your wives according to knowledge or in an understanding way. You need to, to know her. Do you, do you know that your, 
your wife's eyes are macadamia, not brown. Not just brown. Or that your husband's eyes are Carolina blue, or are they sapphire blue? I'm not really thinking you need to know answers like that. I'm trying to illustrate, right, that knowing that person who is God's gift to us and knowing them intimately and fully is a, is a beautiful thing, right? Do you, do you know, husbands, what your, your wife's biggest fear is? Do you know what it is that uh, brings her the most earthly happiness? Is that something that you're, you're ready and willing to pursue for the sake of her uh, earthly pleasure just as an expression of love, just as a means of, of blessing her? Wives, do you know that your husband's favorite meal is three cheese, spicy sausage, lasagna? <clears throat> With homemade French bread? Light on the salad? You've got to leverage these moments. Can I suggest to you simply making a goal to try to learn, learn something new about your spouse every week. Just like make it a personal goal. If you, if you like to journal, uh, I, I mean, I think that's a helpful practice um, or, or however you like to do those things, just make it a goal. I want to try to learn something new about my spouse every week. And, um, and, and it could be something new vocationally, something about their work, something about their ministry, something about a new favorite that you're uh, not aware of. Husbands, it could be your wife's uh, you know, ring size. <laughs> Hint, right? Do you know your wife's ring size? Could you go out and buy her a ring um, as a gift because you know her ring size? Or do you have to ask her her ring size and now she knows you're going to buy her a ring? Of course, most of us would be like, no, I want, to, I want her to help me pick it out because I don't know whether she likes gold or silver. I don't know if she likes oval or I don't even know the shapes. I'm, I'm awful. Guilty, right? So, again, I just think that's a way to practically be cultivating that relational companionship, that, that just, you know, mutual joy that we're supposed to, to have in, in one another. So um, it's a companionship of affection, and we should make it so intentionally and purposefully. Again, that's one of those virtues that I think we, we pursue. I also think there's this companionship of cooperation and, and responsibility where, and we'll talk about this in the next point, but there's a place for leadership and, and headship and submission that is all part of biblical marriage. Um, but I think often overemphasized in a way that misses the, com- the cooperation that is uh, that mutual commission. He said to them to subdue the earth. It's not like Adam got the job and Eve is just the subservient one. It was a mutual commission uh, that they had to subdue the earth. So cultivating companionship to the point where ultimately what God has designed marriage to be, verse 24, they shall become one flesh, is something that's becoming more and more true of you. Because you understand each other so much better, better and better and better as, as time goes on. So that, that, that oneness, that intimacy, 
is just increasing uh, over time so that uh, really you become one in spirit, one in thought, mind, purpose. You, you begin to finish each other's sentences, and I don't even need to ask sometimes what my wife would prefer. I, I already know because we've had these conversations, and I'm being intentional about trying to remember them. Do I do that perfectly? No, none of us do. Just saying that should be the pursuit. That should be what we're working toward. I like, I like how Wayne Mack puts it uh, in his book, Strengthening Your Marriage. Marriage is a total commitment and a total sharing of the total person with another until death. Sharing, sharing everything that we have. There's, there's, no, there's no locked rooms in, in our, our lives together as married couples. We should be sharing everything and cultivating that kind of uh, companionship. That's one thing. Number two, and that flows out of the statement, right? It's not good for a man to be alone. He's designed for us to function in this way. Then, then what was the specific thing that he called Eve to do? That's, I think, the second part or the second uh, pursuit that we need to understand and, and try to incorporate intentionally into our lives. I will make him a helper suitable for him, right? A helper suitable, a complement. Wives must complement their husband's service to God. And that's complement with an E in the middle, uh, as in complete. It's not like, way to serve God, honey. Um, that's a complement with an I in the middle. Complement with an E in the middle is uh, completing, um, being the, the, the other half of his service to God. When man and woman were created in the image of likely of God, as I said, uh, they were both given the responsibility to fill the earth and subdue the earth and to rule over the earth. They were given that together, and wives are to be joyously complementing their husband's service, coming alongside him to mutually fulfill that task that God gave to them together. The, the phrase helper suitable or suitable helper, I think, um, has implications. Um, th- that's why I use the word complement there that I have to explain because I think it's probably the best uh, the best word to use. A complement is something that completes the other half. That's kind of the idea. So um, it, it just it doesn't. Uh, it, it's not complete uh, without the other half. So I mean, there's ways I suppose you could illustrate it. I, I have in my notes a sporty convertible is the perfect complement to a week at a luxury beach resort. Don't you think? So a beach resort is awesome. Sporty convertible, pretty fun. But man, put those two together and you're probably going to enjoy that week just a little bit more, right? So it's kind of trite, but I, I think you know making the other half better is the idea. Um, and God said man needed a helper. He needed someone to help him get the job done. Someone who would be a complement, a completer. The one who would help him complete that those tasks that God had given to them together. So when we see that word helper, I think we have a tendency to think of it as a, as a uh, if not a demeaning term, at least something that probably is speaking a lot more to, to functional subordination than the term itself implies. So the idea that's wrapped up in, in the term helper in Scripture is someone who comes along to provide what the other person needs. And that's why the referent, the most common referent uh, as a helper in the Scripture, is God. 
God is called a helper more than anyone else in the Bible. Psalm 30, hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. Same word. Psalm 54, behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. And Job calls himself a helper of the poor. I delivered the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper. Job 29.12. So, and of course, God in many times is called the helper of the poor and the oppressed and the widow and the orphan. And that gives us a better picture, I think, of what the helper is. A helper in the biblical sense is someone who comes alongside someone who is needy or someone who is inadequate by themselves and provides what they need. Woman is a helper that corresponds to man, that is suitable for him, who is the, the one who perfectly uh, makes up for his inadequacies, who perfectly helps provide what he needs in order to fulfill uh, God's commission on his life. And again, as I said, he was inadequate to reproduce and rule over the earth uh, fully, uh, adequately on his own. And so God provides Eve, a wonderful gift to him. And within the relationship of marriage, which God has designed, there's still a functional difference with the husband being the head, the leader, the wife being the helper, the suitable complement who provides what is needed to make that partnership really, uh, really sing the way it's supposed to, or in our case, swing the way it's supposed to. Um, man and woman work together to accomplish God's purposes. They, they stand together as equals in terms of imaging God and equals in terms of their standing before God, but in their roles, um, there's, there's, uh, there are still functional roles. The equality of image-bearing and the partnership of joint responsibilities sometimes has been, been overshadowed. So um, I think... Maybe just in terms of a of a swing in our culture as a as a response to maybe the feminism that sort of swept the country in the seventies and eighties, the church sometimes I think has uh, overemphasized headship in a way that has has not always been helpful. Uh, that has uh, in some I think more conservative churches created a, what I call a hyper headship, where I'm the head of the home and that's the way it is kind of thing. I can't ever imagine Jesus um, dropping a line like that, right? Like Jesus, the, w- the way he shepherds our souls, the way he exercises headship over the church, it's not without authority, and yet it is, it's, it's not with an attitude that says the buck stops here. So if the Lord of all the universe wouldn't cop an attitude of the buck stops here, so get in line. Um, again, he, he issues commands. I'm not saying he's an authoritative, but I just think there needs to be an understanding that headship and submission always involves willing deference to loving leadership. That's, that's the, the design, I think. A willing deference to loving leadership. And only when both are are doing their part, does it work the way I think God has designed it to work? So um, that, that I, I issue is just kind of a let's not swing a pendulum in, in a direction that makes marriage look uh, like something less than that beautiful, intimate companionship and partnership that I think God has designed it 
to be. We, we really should be striving and working together with mutual purpose um, and the, the leadership, the headship that we should be providing men is that sacrifice. These are the words the Bible uses about husbands, right? Godly, sacrificial, nurturing, cherishing, servant-minded, consider others more important than yourself kind of leadership. That's what God has called us uh, to exercise. And so uh, leadership that doesn't look like that is, is going to create a, a context, a culture in your marriage that's not really picturing all of the things that God has designed your marriage to, to picture. So I always say when I'm doing premarital counseling, I, I say to guys, if you play the headship card more than five times in your entire marriage, you're doing it wrong. Like that should be so rare that that I have to, you know, say I'm just going to have to make a decision here. Like I want to humbly and carefully and wisely lead my wife. And if she's understanding her role biblically, then then that can happen. If she's refusing to 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 live out the role as we've described it this compliment, then that's going to be very very hard to happen and that creates different things. But if both husbands and wives are striving to live out their roles in a God-honoring way, the way the Bible describes them, I don't think men are going to need to to play the headship card uh, hardly ever. So that's what I think an ideal complementarianism looks like in uh, in God's design. So again, our marriage is hard, isn't it? This doesn't always work out that way. And so, um, but stepping back and going, okay, what's going on in my heart? How, how am I failing? How can I lead her? Wives, how am I failing? How can I come under his loving leadership or encourage him to be more loving as he leads, etc.? We're trying to help each other, we hope, professing Christians, trying to help our spouses go toward these ideals as well. And it's, it's imperfect. And uh, we were talking with um, Liz this morning and, and our, our dancing you know, the lead and follow thing with dancing is really a great illustration of what marriage looks like. When you see a couple who really knows how to dance in a lead-follow way, um, like, like call-and-response type of leading, you're like, how do they know what to do? Well, there's this whole dynamic going with, with weight shifts and hand motions and, and et cetera, and, and a woman has to be you know, ready to go where I take her. That's, that's how it works. So how did she know to go that way? Well, I took her there, and her momentum was taking her there because, because she's maintaining the right momentum. It's a great, once you learn how to dance, you're like, this is just like marriage. Um, including the first year where we fought about who wasn't leading and who wasn't following uh, as we were trying to learn how to dance. And, uh, and so um, that was, that was an, an ugly year in terms of dancing, um, but sanctifying as well. So what does that headship look like? I think, number one, pursuit, cultivate companionship. Number two, pursuit, wives, complement your husband's service to God, be his completer. And three, husbands, exercise proper headship. So let's talk about it. I think the Bible makes clear that proper headship is not an absolute authority. Um, there's no type of biblical headship that would justify chauvinistic or oppressive treatment of women or even controlling behavior. That is a perversion of the divine order. Headship in a Christian home is a delegated authority. 
And I'm not, I'm, sometimes I wonder if authority is even the right word. It's a delegated responsibility that has to be exercised under the authority and lordship of the one who granted it. So if I'm not exercising my, my leadership responsibilities in a way that honors God, then I'm, I'm no longer expressing true biblical headship. It's, it's something else. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a kind of headship maybe that's tainted by my, my self-will or some other thing. So a delegated headship is one that's done the way Christ would do it. It's, rec- it's, a, it's a headship that recognizes my wife is precious. It's a headship and a kind of leadership that recognizes I, because she's precious, I have responsibilities to care for her and to protect her and provide for her. Biblical authority in the home is humbled by the fact that I need a helper suitable, that I'm inadequate in myself. By implication, I I, I need that helper uh, to do marriage and to fulfill uh, my God-given calling in the best way. And it's a kind of authority or a kind of leadership that is supposed to be an intimate, one-flesh companionship. So if you exercise, I mean, everybody's had an oppressive boss somewhere along the line. That the guy, There's a reason we, we use the adjective bossy, <laughs> right? Who likes that, right? Anybody who's had a bossy boss doesn't want to be their friend, do they? We don't want to be friends with that person. They're too bossy. And so, and that happens in, you know, the oldest child too, right? Another story. So, uh, yeah, we don't want to be friends with the bossy person. And so think about that, husbands. If, if your leadership is that way, you're, you're not going to be able to develop that intimate companionship and partnership that God's designed to mar- marriage to be. And so you have to exercise that leadership under underneath the lordship of christ which means it has to be a christ-like kind of leading jesus in matthew chapter 20 talks about what his leadership looks like and doesn't look like right in matthew 20 verse 24 and this is when the the uh uh, the disciples were all like hey i want to be on your right i want to be on your left you know they're all vying for position and power in the kingdom right and uh, the ten, ten of the disciples became indignant uh, with James and John, I think, uh, who, were, who were trying to weasel their way into a little extra authority. And Jesus calls them all to himself, and he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that sacrificial, servant-hearted way of leading. Our leadership in every way needs to look like that, which means it's going to look different than the world, right? Right? So the, the world's idea of headship that says, I'm, I'm the boss around here, or the buck stops here, that's, that's just not biblical leadership. So 
Oh, that's not Christian authority structure. We should be serving and loving, uh, guiding our wives toward, like Jesus, wanting to present the church to Himself in, in all splendor, recognizing our wives are precious. I want to take them to the Lord uh, and, and be found faithful. We should love our wives as their own bodies, right? Nourishing and cherishing it. Holding fast to our wives, it says. Loving his wife as himself. We take really good care of ourselves, right? That's the implication. And whatever it is that's important to her needs to be important to you. That's what I think godly leadership is, is going to look like. It's, it's a kind of leading that doesn't leave room for being passive either. Like, I don't think this means you're some kind of milk toast, but somewhere between milk toast and authoritarian, there's godly Christ-like leadership, and we're constantly striving to try to figure out what, what is that and how do I live that out in our homes. This is why we need so much care and, and accountability and input from others. This is why I need older men in my life to help me understand what is it going to look like in this situation, right? Um, what, what does... Well, here, I'll, I'll, I'll confess what my anger was. What does godly, humble leadership in the home look like when your wife wants to transition you to a plant-based diet? I still have to love and lead and nourish and cherish and be considerate and uh, listen right? It's very easy in situations like that to just get angry and stubborn and dig in my heels and say the buck stops here, right? Um, I can't do that, right? I can't do that. Um, So I slapped her silly with some bacon. No, that's not what happened. It's not beef. It's beyond beef. Okay. That's just a hilarious name for a food. Um, So Ephesians 5, I think, paints such a rich picture of what loving, Christ-like, sacrificial, nourishing and cherishing of our wives uh, ought to look like. And and we need to understand that. And, And again, like all the things I've been talking about, with the help and care and counsel of others, intentionally and purposely pursue those things to the extent that we're sure this is going to reflect the character of Christ and be, and be godly. So what does, that, what does that look like? Well, you know, one of the ways I think that looks like, husbands, is Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31 is a picture of godly headship. You hearing me? The, the virtuous woman... We don't hear so much about the man there other than he's fed well, he's clothed well, and he has a great reputation. That's what we hear about the Proverbs 31 husband. But whoever that guy was, he had figured out how to enable his wife to be fruitful, right? Successful. He had encouraged his wife to do some things that I don't encourage my wife to do. Here's the checkbook, honey. Go buy some property, who does that? The Proverbs 31 husband did, apparently. She considers a field and buys it, right? So that guy knew, he, and he had a good reputation because his wife was, was so 
so diligent and purposeful and effective and, and fruitful in her, in her home and in her community, right? So he had figured out how to make her, encourage her toward being a productive and joyful and flourishing wife and mother and member of the community. That's what godly headship will, will at least try to do, right? And so that's why it's so important to know, what are your wife's dreams? What are your wife's gifts? What are her talents? What are her desires? And they, they should probably certainly center around the, the home and the family, but perhaps there are other things uh, that you could encourage her toward if that is what she's gifted at, if that was what she enjoys doing. And so how do you intentionally express that she's precious to you and you want to see her flourish, right? And as you uh, want those things, nourishing and cherishing her toward that, that life of flourishing. So that doesn't mean it's a no-holds-bar. She gets to do whatever she wants. There's still uh, you know, mutuality in this. That, that companionship and partnership is all part of this, right? But part of your role as a leader is to, to set the tone uh, in the home and make sure that she is encouraged to flourish. That's part of godly leadership. So there's so much more that could be said there, um, but I think uh, that hopefully give you that. I'm, I'm giving you just the first step, boys. <laughs> You're going to have to figure out what the next step is and how to main, sustain that with one another's help. So cultivate companionship. Wives, compliment your husband's service to God. Husbands, exercise a proper headship that's going to both lovingly lead and encourage your wife to flourish. And number four, in this context, verse 25, couples should selflessly enjoy intimacy. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail here, but after the first marriage, uh, God fashions Eve from the rib of Adam, He declares this one flesh nature of marriage. They shall become, the two shall become one flesh. Verse 24, it says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So, Sin's coming soon. But at first, um, remember, when they ate the, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, the first thing they wanted to do immediately was cover their nakedness. Right? A shame previously unknown to them was then introduced into what was before a perfectly harmonious existence together which awkwardly included nakedness and physical intimacy. So the, the reference to nakedness here in verse 25, I think certainly implies that their physical intimacy was untainted by sin. And, and imagine a marriage relationship where nothing was ever done for selfish pleasure. A marriage relationship where husband and wife were both fully interested in one another even sexually, not for what they could get out of it, but for what the other person would enjoy, and where nothing hindered the pursuit of that mutual satisfaction and pleasure. You can try to imagine it, but we've never experienced it, right? Because now we're fallen. But that was the kind of relationship that Adam and Eve enjoyed. That was the kind of relationship that God designed for us to enjoy, and though sin has corrupted that, and even corrupted our our physical relationships and within marriage, um, with Adam and Eve there was no shame, there was no selfishness, there was no embarrassed self consciousness, no reluctance. J- 
just selfless, shameless pursuit of pleasing the other person without reason for shame. That's, that's a beautiful picture. And I believe in God's sanctifying power, it's something that we can pursue as married couples and ought to pursue as married couples. Now, I don't, I don't think that was put first because if we're not pursuing all of God's ideals and designs and companionship and partnership and intimacy and, 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 and fulfilling our roles, then that's just another hiccup in trying to enjoy physical intimacy, right? Because it, it creates that tension that sin creates, which just makes that harder. So fulfilling those other three things is, I think, primary and, and uh, first and foremost. But then after that, I think God's telling married couples, this, this, there is something beautiful to God's design of enjoying selflessly the intimacy of, of marriage. So that's part of what he's designed marriage to be. So um, those, are, those are four pursuits of a God-honoring marriage that I think flow right out of Genesis 2. And as we're thinking about encouraging one another in our marriage relationships, figuring out, okay, what do these four pursuits look like for me. And again, certainly start with the first three. If you start with the fourth one, you're already off on the wrong foot. Start with the first three. Practice those. Get good at those. Cultivate that companionship. Cultivate that partnership uh, in ways that make your physical intimacy just an overflow of that. Uh, just another way to express um, what already exists relationally. And again, there's a lot more I could say about that, but... Um, it would be awkward, and oh, our time's up. <laughs> so we're going to stop right there. Because you have texted in a thousand questions, and we're going to try to get to as many as possible because, again, I really enjoy this uh, this time every time I do something like this. So let me pray. God, we thank you for the gift that is marriage. Um, we, we know that this is uh, a way. Uh, in, a, in a significant way in which we in, in our relationships and as a church can reflect your image to put um, your goodness on display so that, that men, uh, women would see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. It pictures uh, your relationship with your people and, and we want to do that well. We want to do it um, uh, in your power. We want to do it for your glory. So help us not just know these principles. Help us Think carefully about what it looks like to put these virtues on uh, in an intentional and purposeful way. Help us to be people who are are thinking through it together um, and uh, encouraging one another toward these ideals that we know would bring uh, glory to you. We thank you. We thank you for it. Uh, We know there's a lot of single people here too. and, And God encouraged them that they're striving to be the kinds of people that understand these principles and would do it well if you so bless uh, with a marriage partner. Um, Help the men uh, be godly men. Help the young women grow into uh, virtuous women who uh, can live out these ideals because their, their hearts are already changed toward that selflessness. And until then, help them take joy in serving you uh, without uh, distraction, wholeheartedly um, uh, working for your kingdom. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen.